Good to see you all. Like that, okay. Well, this evening, you picked a good night to be with us. We're starting in the new year. We're starting a new series, and we're in the book of Esther. And I have to say that Esther is a great book to study for a number of reasons. It is a historical book, so you learn some things, but it's also a great narrative. And so it's, it's, I don't want to say it's entertaining, but in some aspects it really is. It's, it's a, a novelette, if you will. It, it's a story within God's Word that actually happened. Some people seem to think it didn't actually happen, but of course it did. Uh, but it's a story or an account in God's Word of God working on behalf of his people in a very hidden and mysterious way. In fact, this book's theme is divine providence. And what that really means, it's a fancy way of saying God is in control, but it's that God is working in ways yet undiscovered by you. You see, he's working behind the scenes in so many ways in our lives that we we really can't even calculate many times what God is actually doing. And sometimes it seems like he's doing nothing. Not reacting, not responding, not getting involved. And sometimes we say things like, David, oh, how long, oh, Lord? How long will you forget me forever? Where are you, Lord? You know, we pray and we feel as if God is just not even listening or responding to our prayers. The truth of the matter is, which comes out very loud and clear in this book, is that God is not only responding to our prayers, he has worked in advance to bring about his perfect divine will despite your prayers. And we'll see that through this book for a number of reasons. I'm going to share a few things, and we're going to get into the first chapter, which is just going to sort of set the stage for the rest of our studies in the book of Esther. But let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, because you're a good and gracious God, and you're always working, always working, not only behind the scenes, but in and through our lives to bring about your perfect will, not only in our lives, but in the church and in the world and in the hearts of those that don't know you. And we have to trust you with this because if we think for a minute that you've given any control or ceded any control to us or to anyone else, or even to Satan, which you haven't done, we're going to start to think that things really are out of control and we're going to have stress and anxiety and not faith and not peace. So I pray that as we study this book, we, yes, we would learn, we, we would follow the narrative, but more importantly, that we would be able to take away from this, that we can trust you in each and every situation in our lives and even in this world, even in this dark world. And I pray that we would learn that, that we would be able to apply that to our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as is the custom here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to start with a little background. Theme of the book, Divine Providence. A couple of things we need to know. There are a couple of main characters. The first, of course, is Esther herself. This is a book, one of the few books that's named after a woman in the Bible. There, there is, of course, the book of Ruth. But the book of Esther is a book that uh, is named after the Persian name of a woman whose real name was Hadassah. But her name means in Persian, star. So you might say she's the, the star of the story, but her name actually means star, Esther, star. It's derived from Persian, but her Jewish name was Hadassah. It's only mentioned once in, in this book, but it tells us uh, that, you know, she didn't necessarily go by the name Esther, but because the book takes place in the Persian culture, she has a Persian name. Uh, Hadassah means myrtle, so that's kind of interesting. But her cousin, 
who became her adopted father. His name was Mordecai. And Mordecai is a name that means little man. So he's a little man, I guess. They named him that way. Uh, Or maybe he wasn't, and they just called him that. But Esther and Mordecai are the characters, and they were both descended from the tribe of Benjamin, and they lived in the citadel of Susa in Persia. We've talked about Susa before. We talked about Susa in the book of Ezra. We talked about Susa in the book of Nehemiah. And now we're speaking about it again here in the book of Esther. It's a capital of the Persian Empire at that time. One of the capitals. Now the author. The author of the book of Esther is not Esther. It's named after Esther. But the book was most likely written by a Jew living in Persia before the rise of the, the Greek Empire. So it could have been anyone, but certainly written around that time. The author writes with a spirit of nationalism, that is Jewish nationalism, and has an undeniably accurate knowledge of Persian life and customs. Clearly, it was written when we believe it was written because of that alone. But it's also quite possible, although we don't know, that Mordecai himself recorded these events and that uh, he then wrote this narrative because this is not a pure history of the events. Um, When you think about history, you think about the writings of Ezra, who didn't really record narratives. Uh, He recorded history and pieced it together. And even to some degree, Nehemiah was a little like that, although Nehemiah had a little bit more narrative in it. This book is a narrative. It has a beginning and end. It's it's, it's a story in addition to being an historical account. Uh, so we believe it was not only recorded, which may, may have been recorded by and probably was recorded by Mordecai, but then it was written as a narrative, possibly by Mordecai, but doesn't have to have been, didn't have to have been written by Mordecai. It could have been written by someone else. But again, a Jew living around the time of the Persian, uh, Persian Empire. So the book of Esther was likely composed sometime between 464 and 425 B.C., I'm going to give you some of the chronology so you can place this book within the chronology of the Old Testament. The language is very similar in style to the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and First and Second Chronicles because all of those books were written approximately the same time during the time of the Persian captivity. The book records historical events in Persia from the 3rd to the 12th years of Xerxes' rule. So we'll be talking about King Xerxes who actually was the predecessor of Artaxerxes, who we've talked about in both the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This book, to give you sort of where it fits in, begins about 55 years after the return of Joshua and Zerubbabel, which we talked about in the book of Esther in chapters 1, excuse me, book of Ezra, in in chapters 1 through 6. And then it ends about 13 years before the return of Ezra, in 458 BC. So when you look at the book of Ezra, there's two halves, there's two parts. The first takes place in the past, the second part is in Ezra's present, and what we're finding out here is that the book of Esther actually fits chronologically after chapter 6 of the book of Ezra and before chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. So if you're going to lay it out chronologically, you'd have first uh, half of Ezra, Esther, second half of Ezra, and then Nehemiah. But it's not laid out like that because the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles were written and compiled by one author. We believe that author to be Ezra. So now we get to a decidedly different book, a book that has some uh, poetic nature. It, it, it's, again, more of a novel, more of an account, a narrative. Uh, and so it's not included in the mainline history of the Jews. 
Uh, but what it does is gives us some important information. As I said, about 55 years after the Jews returned uh, with Joshua and Zerubbabel, and about 13 years before the return of Ezra, about 27 years before the return of Nehemiah in 444 BC, which is something we just studied recently. Now, this book is unique among the 66 books of the Bible because the name of God is not mentioned at all within its pages. When someone told me that the first time, I said, oh, yes, it is. I had read it a number of times. I thought, oh, for sure. I never noticed that God's name wasn't mentioned. I just kind of felt like he was always there in the middle of everything that was happening. And that's really the point of the narrative. In a poetic way, God is conspicuous by his absence. And I say absence, he's not mentioned directly, but it's clear that God is moving, again, divine providence, in such a powerful and obvious way that you don't even really notice that his name isn't mentioned as you're studying this book. And I really think that that's by design. But it is generally considered to be a book that's inspired by God. It's the inspired word of God. Uh, it, only, it, it is the only book that, that does not have the name of God at all within its pages. But there's one that comes very, very close, and that is the Song of Songs. Uh, it has a reference to Jah, which in Hebrew means the eternal. And in Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6, there's this phrase. It's the only time in that book that God is mentioned. Uh, it says, a mighty flame, and it's literally translated the flame of the Lord. So, for playing Bible trivia later this you know, year, and you're on a cold night or something, and you get that question, you'll think, oh, thank Pastor Tim for teaching me that question. I won the game as a result. Uh, but it is interesting information. So you have those two books that sort of don't have much in the way of a mention of God, but this one not at all. Now, the book does have something. I don't want to get too much into this. Uh, in Hebrew, there are these acrostics. We think of them as like A is for apple, B is for boy, C is for cat, D is for dog, right? It's taking a letter and then sort of like following a pattern. Well, if you do that in the actual original language, the original Hebrew here, you're going to find out that there are four acrostics, sort of hidden codes within the book of Esther. One's in chapter 1, one in chapter 5, actually two in chapter 5 and one in chapter 7 which indicate the name of God, Y-H-V-H, in Hebrew, but they're hidden. I saw somebody who was, uh, somebody was doing a jumble, or, or, or a, I think it was Murda. She might have been doing a puzzle or something before, right, when, when, we were, when you were here early. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm one of those people I do crosswords. I do one every day. It's good for the mind, and it's better than just watching the news. So I've replaced the news with crosswords. You learn more. And you don't go crazy. Your blood pressure stays low. It's really actually quite invigorating. So anyway, having said that, I saw that Murda doing that puzzle. And I thought to myself, this is kind of like trying to find one of those puzzle words in that, uh, what, do they, what do they call that, the, uh, scramble or jumble or something like that, uh, hidden word, seek or whatever. And uh, it's like that. And if you look in the original language, you'll find YHVH four times, suspiciously within the pages. And I don't think it's a mistake. I think that's God's way, the power of the Holy Spirit, even though he's not mentioned, showing us that despite the fact that his name never comes up, he is so clearly, obviously working in this book. And you'll see that. There's no doubt. But there he is in these sort of hidden codes. The name of God actually shows up. Yeah, I think that's so true in our lives, right? I mean, for a person who doesn't know God, 
They go through life and, and, and they, they talk about coincidence. They talk about the universe. It drives me crazy, I have to be honest with you. I have some good friends who they say that occasionally. You know, they don't know the Lord yet, but it's like, well, the universe was smiling on us and the universe spoke. And let's be honest, the universe doesn't speak. God speaks. He reveals himself in his creation, which is the universe. So when they see that, when they recognize that, that it's, that it's not just coincidence. They, they recognize that, that it's not just coincidence. But they attribute it to some creative force, the universe, some people, Mother Nature, whatever. We know better that it's actually God working and revealing himself to them. But sadly, they don't realize it yet. Well, what we're going to see as we study this book is that's how God is always working. That's probably the most important lesson we're going to glean from this book and from this study. To know that God is always working in our midst in ways yet undiscovered by us. And, and as long as you understand that, that just because you can't see God working doesn't mean he isn't working, you're going to be okay. We call that faith. Amen? To trust that God is working even though it doesn't seem like he is. So anyway, I just, I find that interesting. That's sort of the backdrop of the study of this book. But the purpose of this book is to demonstrate God's providential care for his people in their trials and their persecutions. God is always working on our behalf. It also provides an explanation for the origin of the Feast of Purim, which the Jews still celebrate today. That feast wasn't mentioned until the historical book called Second Maccabees. But we wouldn't know the origin of this feast or how it started or why it's celebrated the way it is without this book in the Bible. By the way, uh, the Jews just recently celebrated Hanukkah, right? Around our time of Christmas, shortly before that. And most religious Jews will celebrate Hanukkah, but it's, it, it's more of a, a cultural holiday than it is a religious holiday. It's not mentioned in the law. One of the things I would mention is in the Gospels, there's a time, and I believe it's in John's Gospel, where Jesus goes to celebrate the feast in winter. It's Hanukkah. So we know that Jesus recognized feasts like the Feast of Purim and the Feast of, uh, well, Feast or Celebration of Hanukkah in a Jewish way as a Jew in his culture. There's nothing wrong with that. And I think it's important to recognize there are some holidays that we as Christians celebrate that aren't really Christian holidays. I don't really think we should be celebrating pagan holidays. I certainly don't think we should. That's why I'm kind of anti-Halloween and like the hardcore Christmas commercialism and things of that nature. And then some of the pagan elements of Christmas as well. But if Jesus celebrated his culture and how God worked, or at least was reported to have worked in the time of Hanukkah and worked among his people with the Feast of Purim, kind of sets a precedent for us. We can celebrate our culture as it relates to our relationship with God. So I'll give you a perfect example of how we can do this as Christians today. Fourth of July. I mean, it's not a religious holiday, right? It's not a Christian holiday. But in celebrating as Christians the birth of our nation, we're acknowledging God's hand in the birth of our nation. Are you with me? So there are times where it's okay to celebrate holidays that aren't, you know, strictly religious. And I, I mention that because the Jews celebrate Hanukkah and Purim, and they're not really religious holidays. 
And so this book gives us an understanding of why they celebrate Purim. All right, which is going to ha- happen actually in a couple of uh, months. I think March this year is Purim, but we'll see. We'll probably still be in this book. We're getting close to the end by the time we get there. Okay, just one little application here I wanted to share. It tells, this book tells in detail a story, the story of a plot to exterminate the entire Jewish nation and how it was thwarted. We are familiar with stories, historical accounts throughout the centuries of how the enemy has tried to destroy the Jewish people. This is just one, but it's very interesting to see how God prevented it from happening. If you look at the history of the Jewish people, there's story after story, not just Purim, story after story of times where they should have been completely destroyed as a people, and yet here they are back in the land of Israel as of May 14, 1948, divine providence. That's the point, divine providence, okay? Now, had this genocidal plot succeeded, there would have been no Ezra. (laughs) As I've already shared with you, Ezra took place after this. That is that part of the book of Ezra that Ezra was involved in. There would have been no Nehemiah, which we just studied. And more importantly, there would have been no Jesus, no Christ. The Jews would have been destroyed. You think God was going to allow that to happen? Of course not because God is sovereign. And that is the lesson of this book. Now, the book of Esther is in the Jewish Bible, if you will, placed uh, among what they call the hagiographia by the Jews. It's the first, in the first portion, called the Megillah, or the five rolls. So it is a very important portion of Scripture, but not the most important portion of Scripture uh, that the Jews read. Uh, certainly the Torah, or the law, would be more important. But the entire book is written on a single roll. It can fit on a single roll, and it's read through by the Jews in the synagogue on the Feast of Purim, and that happens every year. Okay. Now, there's, there's a lot of people that dispute whether this book is real, and they have all these reasons for it. Of course, we know better. God's word can be trusted. Amen? So we're not even going to waste our time or our breath with that. But what I do want to do now is sort of get right into chapter 1, which is really like the, 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 the prologue. It really doesn't, we don't really get to Esther and Mordecai and the events that we're going to study just yet. But in chapter one, very important events take place that set the stage for the rest of the book. So we're going to take the time to look at that. And basically what happens in chapter one is Xerxes is forced to remove his queen, whose name is Vashti, from her position. And because of that, it sets up this whole narrative, the whole plot centers around the fact that Xerxes needed to replace his queen a few years later. And that opens up the door for Esther, and Mordecai gets involved, and then we have a bad guy, got to have a bad guy, right? Haman, and he gets involved. And when the Jews read this, that single role in the synagogue, whenever the name of Haman is mentioned, they all like, boo. It's a very theatrical, dramatic uh, celebration, Purim. And uh, if you've ever been a part of it or know anything about it, you know that it's actually a very fun time. Uh, time of celebration. The kids uh, dress up in the characters of this book, and so it's kind of like what we might call Halloween in that they get into costumes, but it's nothing like Halloween, obviously. So let's take a look at uh, verses 1 through 9. We'll just do a little survey of uh, what set up the rest of this book. In verse 1 in chapter 1 in the book of Esther, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. And you'll see right away this is already recorded very differently than the books we've been studying over the last years. It, it, it's, it's not historical 
work. It, it is a, a narrative. And so it reads, and it's very, reads easily, very easy to understand. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over... The king gave a banquet. That's the banquet that we've been talking about. Lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people, from the least to the greatest, who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material, to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, that is, as much as he wanted. Uh, We call that open bar today. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. This was a party. And then in verse 9, we read that Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So the men and the women were generally separated uh, in this culture at this time. Uh, There were exceptions, but as far as the banquets were concerned, they were held separately. So everyone's having a great time. This is a a wonderful time of celebration that Xerxes has implemented. Now, there's a reason for it. I'm going to share what, what, what the reason is. And I think you need to know that any time a politician or a leader starts giving away free stuff, there's usually a price to pay. Have you figured that out? You know, I mean, in the last election, they were throwing around this idea of free tuition, and I think anyone with a brain knew it wasn't going to make it through the courts, but there were people out there that were stupid enough to believe that that was going to pass, and, oh, let me vote for him, I'm going to get free tuition, like that was ever going to happen. And we see this on both sides of the aisle. We see this over and over again. Promises made, right? Like, we have some presidents that keep them, but most don't. What is going on here? Why this banquet? Leaders, kings, presidents, they don't just start giving away free stuff for no reason. They don't invite you to a seven-day banquet with open bar just because they're nice. So I'm going to share with you the political reasons for what was actually going on. Xerxes, king of Persia, gave the banquet for all of his nobles and officials. Those were the people in power in the third year of his reign. And one thing I do want to mention is he had succeeded his father, Darius Histospes, who had skillfully ruled Persia for 36 years in 486 BC. And one of the things that kings always liked to do was early on to establish their power and their legacy. So if you were to take over from your father, who was a very powerful king, uh, who ruled for 36 years, you want to make your mark right up front. You want to prove to everybody in your kingdom that you're a good leader, and that you're going to accomplish things so you can get their support right away. If you didn't, you sometimes got assassinated. Uh, They didn't have elections the way we have elections. They had assassinations. So the kings were very, very, uh, they, they were very much trying to make their mark early on. It was a very important priority for them. And that's what's happening here. Now, this man, Xerxes, ruled over 127 provinces from India to Kush. That is from Egypt... Uh, and northern Africa. So 
from India. You guys know where India is, right? It's on the other side of Persia, which is modern-day Iran, all the way across the Middle East, all the way to northern Africa. So think about that. That is a huge empire. The Persian Empire, their immediate Persian Empire was huge. Uh, it was superseded by the Greek Empire and later the Roman Empire. But at this time, it was the greatest empire that had ever existed on the world or in the world or on the planet. So, so keep that in mind. We're being told up front, this guy's the king of the world, quite literally. Uh, and so, you know, why is he doing this? What's going on? Uh, well, I, I remember a quote I heard when we were touring. I think I heard it when we were touring the Rockefeller Mansion up in Kayakut, or I read it somewhere else, that someone had asked John D. Rockefeller, how much is enough? And he said, just a little more. And it's so true. I mean, I, he was easily like the, the richest man that, that ever lived, even when you account for today's wealth. I think the statistic I heard was that if you accounted for today's wealth, Bill Gates at the time would have been like the fourth richest man. And then Andrew Carnegie would have been the second, and he was far behind John D. Rockefeller. This man was like just loaded. And so how much is enough, John D. Rockefeller? Just a little more. So you're, you're looking at a man who has everything and more, everything you could possibly want, ruling over the known world, but he's still up to something because enough is not enough. And that goes to show you, that's what the world has to offer. If you get everything you've ever wanted in this world and you, you do it apart from Christ, you're going to find yourself in a place where you wake up and you say, oh, I'm so dissatisfied, I just need a little more. That's the lie that you could somehow find satisfaction in the world, the things of the world, in relationships, in money, in possessions. What is it that, you know, people, it, it, we're so funny. We get the car we always wanted, and about five minutes later, somebody drives past us in a later model, and we're already figuring out how can I trade it in. I remember this was going back when big screen TVs just came out, like where you paid thousands of dollars for a screen that was like, I don't know, 40 inches or something like that. And that was like a big screen TV back then, right? And now you go into Costco and it's like a jumbotron for like $300. And you think to yourself, what? what? What happened? But going back many years now, probably about 15 years, I remember a friend of mine who always had the latest and the greatest. He had bought a large, at the time, large screen uh, television. And uh, he had gotten that model. And like no sooner that he bought it, he was talking about it and everything, no sooner that he bought it, a better one came out. And all he could do was try to figure out, what am I going to do with the old one? And, and, and it just, you know, God has shown me over the years, you get caught up in that way of thinking, you're dead, you're done. Your heart will no longer belong to God. It will belong to things. So I have a 32-inch flat-screen TV, which I will have until it dies. And then I'll try to find one that small when I have to replace it. And I always like to say this, you want a bigger TV? Move closer to the TV. I, I just like, I like to say that because that's what I do. Okay. So back to our narrative, and I want to get off point here. Back to our narrative here. This man is up to something. He would ultimately reign from the citadel of Susa in Persia for 21 years. Not as long as his father, but 21 years from 486 to 465 BC. So he was a powerful ruler. He ended up establishing himself. But what he's trying to do here, history tells us, he's trying to win support for a costly war. Isn't that something? How much time and energy in Washington and throughout the capitals of the world is spent trying to convince people to spend more money on war. 
It makes me ill. But he was trying to win support for the costly war efforts that he had planned against Greece. See, Greece was starting to infringe upon his territory, and he had to have that little more. So now he's going to whoop everybody up, get everybody together, open bar, everybody hang out, and he's going to try to convince them that the most important thing that they can do is go to war with Greece. That's what he's up to. All right? So you never get, as I say in the vernacular, nothing for nothing. You know, you don't get anything for nothing. You just don't. So he also invited the wealthy princes, the nobles of the provinces within the empire. He invited the military leaders of Persian media to gain their support. And he was planning to attack Greece in order to annex their territory to his vast empire. Now, he had displayed a very pretentious amount of his wealth. We learn there in verse 4 that this display of wealth was on exhibit for a full 180 days leading up to the banquet. So the banquet was scheduled, and 180 days, about six months, right? Before the banquet, he's displaying all of his wealth, like, I guess, like an exhibit, or uh, sometimes if you, if you go to a, a museum or something, you'll see different aspects of, of a time period. Well, this is like his wealth on display for all the world to say. It's meant to impress and make you feel really good about the king so that he can take your tax money and spend it on a war. And so, after this 180 days leading up to the banquet, he gives this extravagant banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the palace. And the open bar was by design. It was supposed to soften the mind and the heart of everyone there into agreeing that this was a good idea to go to war. He invited all the people who were in the citadel of Susa. He had the enclosed garden elaborately decorated to impress his guests, which we've already read about. He generously served wine to all of his guests in ornate goblets of gold. And his, he, he, his queen, Vashti, also gave a banquet for the women. So everybody's having a good time. And then it goes terribly wrong. Something he could not have anticipated, which he should have anticipated. He had a woman in his life that didn't do exactly what he wanted. And ladies, don't we know this? That, you know, sometimes, right, men think things need to go a certain way, and women, you do a great job of correcting them. Men think, well, this is the way it should go, and then women are very clear to make it clear. No, it's not going to go that way. And this is a case in point. Let's read in verses 10 through 12. In verse 10, it says, On the seventh day, notice this, when the king Xerxes, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, I think you know what that means, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Ab, Abiktha, Zethar, and Karkas to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Uh, that, we call that objectification today. You know, me too would have a field day with that. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come, and then the king became furious and burned with anger. So, wow, didn't go the way he wanted. Had everything except he couldn't get his wife to listen to him. Well, that's life. What can I tell you? So here he is, drunk, after seven years of celebrating his own, seven days, excuse me, and 180 days, actually, as well, of celebrating his own success, 
feeling really good about life and thinking everything's going his way. And he commands his wife to do something that actually technically she was supposed to do just because he's the king, to appear before all of his nobles and officials on the last day of his banquet. Basically, what do we call that? Arm candy? That's a phrase that's used, you know, show up, be the arm candy. Now, now I've, I've bragged about all the things that I have. Now I want everybody to see how beautiful my queen is. So this is, again, just posturing for the same reason. And uh, he commanded his seven eunuchs to bring her, that is Vashti, to the banquet, display her, her beauty to the guests. But she refused his command. She refused his command to come to the banquet, which made him furious with rage. We'll see that this guy knew how to get angry. And he wanted to use her. And that's the important thing to see here. He wanted to use her, you know, the way Hollywood uses every woman who's involved in Hollywood, let's be honest, right? And the media, and uh, it's sad, but he wanted to use her to make himself look good in the eyes of his guests. And her refusal greatly embarrassed him. So now there's a problem, but that problem is under control because God is in control, amen? And because of this situation, it opens up the door, as we'll see starting next week, that that God was actually working through all these problems and all these difficulties to bring about his perfect will. And as that unfolds, it's like, oh my goodness, there's no coincidence. There's just God incidents. There's no coincidence. And we'll see that, not tonight, but we will see that this sets the stage for all of that. Okay, so let's look at verses 13 through 15. Here we see Xerxes consulted his seven wisest nobles about Vashti's refusal to obey his command. So basically he consulted his lawyers, right? So here we go. Verse 13. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Karshena, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memucan. The seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, this is the king asking this, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. So now there's going to be some punishment measured out on her because of her behavior. Now, Memucan advises the king. Here's what we read in verses 16 through 20. Then Memucan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong. Now, as I read through this, you, this, this section is just laced with male chauvinism at a level that we thankfully don't see anymore in our culture. But as I read through this, it, it, it's, it's really pretty disgusting. But I just want you to know, I do not approve. All right? I'm just reading the story. All right? I, the account from God's word. The Bible doesn't endorse this way of thinking about women. I just want you to know that this is what happened, okay? Then Mamakin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so that they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. That is, our king's wife doesn't listen to him, why should I listen to you, basically? That's, that's the, the thinking. Uh, this very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the king's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. Uh, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Interesting take on 
what happened to this woman, which was very disrespectful. But Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then the king's edict, uh, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Yeah, okay. That's the idea. That's what the guys are getting together to talk about in the kingdom. How do we keep women under our feet? But it's a different time and a different culture. And that's what we're seeing playing out here. Now, what he did was he declared to the king that Vashti should be removed as queen. It was a position of royalty, but it was a position, a high position of influence. And she's going to lose that position now because she didn't want to listen to the king. Uh, Memelkin declared that Vashti had wronged the entire ruling class of Persia. And he feared that Vashti's, Vashti's conduct would encourage all, whether this is true or not, I don't know, but all Persian women to disrespect their husbands. He also believed that the disrespect of their noble women would then bring discord to Persian society. This is the same argument that's been used for centuries, indeed millennia, to keep women from voting, from speaking, from being involved in public life. And it's, it's chauvinism. It, it's wrong. It's terrible. It's disrespectful. It's not godly. The Bible does not endorse it. Jesus didn't teach it. Paul didn't teach it. So when people paint that negative picture of us as Christians that somehow, you know, we want to keep women down and, you know, they, they look at things like this and they think that that's how we think, that that's God's heart. It's not. This is the wicked heart of men and men in particular, right? You understand that? Say amen if you understand that. Okay, I just want you to understand God doesn't think that way. We as Christians don't think that way either. These guys thought that way. And he encouraged, Memelkin encouraged Xerxes to issue this royal decree to address her conduct. Now, the decree would be unchangeable because Medo-Persian law could not be repealed. Unlike Babylonian law, it could not be repealed. We saw that in the book of Daniel in chapter 6. This decree would ban her from ever being in Xerxes' presence. And I wonder if Vashti really cared. I want you to think about it. She didn't want to be in the king's presence, so what did they do? We're going to issue a law. You can't be in the king's presence. I wonder what her reaction was. You know, I don't know, but you got to wonder, you know, if she didn't go, you know, who knows? I don't know. Anyway, they thought they were punishing her. Maybe they were. I don't know. But this decree would give her royal position as queen to someone better suited to the role. And that sets up the entire narrative. But Memokin believed that this royal decree would encourage all the Persian women to respect their husbands. And so you see this perceived threat to control and their manhood, if you will, that, that somehow they were going to lose something if women didn't listen to everything they said. And when I see or hear men speak about women in this way or objectify women in the way that King Xerxes did by looking at women and only thinking of them as objects, it disturbs me in much the same way that this story does. I was not raised that way. My father respected my mother greatly. I did not live in a home where women were not treated properly. So when I see this kind of thing, it bothers me. I remember when I was in the 80s working in the corporate world, 
Women were treated very differently in the 80s in the corporate world. And I remember I got along with everybody. I worked with mostly women because I treated women with respect. Imagine that, right? You can treat each other with respect, men and women. And I think it's very sad that there are still some dinosaurs and fossils around today who think that it's okay to treat someone based on their gender, actual gender, by the way, um, differently just because they're female. And so I have to be honest. This, this, you know, I read this and I think to myself, something needs to be said about this uh, because it still exists to a very small degree com- by comparison. But uh, it's so important that men, and I say this to our men here, uh, that you treat women, or can I say with greater respect? Can, can we go so far as to say treat women with great respect? Jesus taught us to, as husbands to, right, to not only just love our wives as ourselves, but as Christ loves the church. So I think, this is my rule, you should, and, and, and I'm not going to say that this is biblical, but I think you should show greater respect for women than you show for men. That's just me, okay? But you should certainly show as much respect for women as you show men. I'm saying that to the men. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's true both ways, but I think in our culture it needs to be said. So, having said that, Xerxes issued this royal decree in verses 21 and 22. Uh, the king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and e- to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. You ever wonder where that idea came from? When, when somebody like that, well, not Ralph Cramden, but very good, Rich. I, you stole my punchline, but it wasn't Ralph Cramden. The idea of the king of the castle, you know, I'm the ruler of my household. Yeah, here it is. It predates the book of Esther. It's a chauvinistic way of thinking that found its way into the Bible, but not endorsed by the Bible. Xerxes issued this royal decree. Every man should be the ruler of his own household. Um, and he and his advisors succeeded in turning what was a political embarrassment into a show of strength and resolve for men everywhere. And these events took place about three years prior to Xerxes' famous campaign against the Greeks in 480 B.C., and we'll see that that was a dismal disaster. So we leave it there for tonight. Some things to think about, some, some background, some history, but some great lessons on how to live our lives in relationship to one another. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these lessons. Thank you for the book of Esther. And Lord, we thank you for women and men, but we thank you for the respect that you've given us in your word to treat one another, men and women, to treat everyone in the way that we would want to be treated, to do unto others as what we would have them do unto us, but but even to, to show respect to esteem one another higher than ourselves, that that is the standard of being a Christian man or a Christian woman. Give us that understanding. Help us to live that way. And may we never objectify anyone or treat anyone disrespectfully. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.